Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all sorts on this program. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, sign up for our free newsletter, our five best stories each week, straight into your inbox. And by the way, send the link to friends. And today, we bring you a story about a catastrophe of epic proportions that took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Jesse. You can inflate a balloon in three seconds, four seconds, I understand. How long is it going to take these kids with no experience? We're figuring that they'll do about two to three balloons a minute. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, so it's unfair to compare. But uh, two to three balloons a minute, each kid is going to do uh, correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day. And, and we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. In September of 1986, United Way of Cleveland, Ohio, set a world record by releasing almost one and a half million balloons up into the sky. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. (laughs) Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. The event was intended to be a harmless fundraising publicity stunt, but the balloons drifted back over the city, Lake Erie, and land in the surrounding area, causing problems for traffic and the nearby airport. I understand we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. (laughs) The stunt was coordinated by Balloon Art, a Los Angeles-based company that spent six months preparing for this. A rectangular structure the size of a city block measuring 250 feet by 150 feet and rising three stories high, covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material was set up to hold the balloons. Inside the structure, 2,500 students and other volunteers spent many hours filling balloons with helium. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Cleveland, it's Big Chuck and Little John in front of the biggest happening around. They originally planned to release 2 million balloons, but stopped at over 1.4 million. What is your name? Tanya Pierre. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Let's take bandages. Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores from your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. The children would sell sponsorships to benefit United Way at the price of $1 for every two balloons that were purchased. Okay, Chuck, as you can see, they're going strong. They're blowing them up. I still think they have the record. Back to you, Chuck. Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. It's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. I've been in this city now for six months, and I absolutely love it. You know, my wife and I have even talked about moving here, and our friends in L.A. think we're nuts. On Saturday, September 27, 1986, with a rainstorm approaching, organizers decided on an early release of the balloons at about 1.50 p.m. Eastern. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Here Take they go. Away, lift off. Amazing. And the fan is up, and there they go, John. Close to 1.5 million balloons rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. Think of, think, think of that, Chuck. The Guinness Book of World Records. 
records, the Cleveland home of the home of the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All of this in Cleveland, Ohio. The All-American City. Now, typically, a helium-filled latex balloon that's released outdoors will stay up in the air long enough to be deflated before it descends to Earth. However, the Balloon Fest balloons were hit with a front of cool air and rain, which caused them to drop towards the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of Northeast Ohio. Two fishermen, who had gone out on September 26th, were reported missing by their families the day of the event. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone. Its sides are battered, apparently from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park. That's where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. When the crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, the balloons in the water made it impossible to spot anyone in the lake. Ironically, that big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're at, you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. And here you have a couple hundred thousand uh, orange, orange balloons and... It's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies were subsequently washed ashore. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. The local airport had to shut down a runway. Traffic collisions were also reported as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicolored balloons. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went, but at least they're no longer posing a threat to fish and wildlife, and they're not littering the lake. While the event was a total loss and a complete disaster, the 1988 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records recognized the event as a world record largest ever mass balloon release, with 1,429,643 balloons launched. And that is Balloon Fest 86. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we have a, a real story to tell you. This is not, we're not making this up. It's really happened. Mary Ellen bought two bunches of balloons to give to John and I here. She came down, and one of the bunches of balloons she had tied to her watch. And the watch opened up, and uh, the balloons took the watch, and it's now going out east somewhere. So John and I say, if anybody finds Mary Allen's watch tied to a bunch of balloons like this, and if you return it to the station, we'll have all kind of rewards for you. And great job, as always, on that, Jesse. And again, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, share our stories with your friends and send your stories to us because we'll make them happen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share your stories, and share our stories with everyone you know. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And today we have Steve Rosidiak's story entitled For Better or Worse. Originally published in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Married Life, which can be found and bought on Amazon.com. Stephen recounts the night he sat with his wife and opened up about a difficult subject, infertility. Here's the story. I'm sorry, was what I had wanted to say. Too bad I lacked the nerve to say it. Two little words, that's all they were. But if I had the courage to say them, they would only open the door to more words, many more. An inevitable conversation would result if my thoughts were given a voice. And to be honest, talking about it was something I'd been trying to avoid. And so we sat out on our deck in silence, watching the intermittent bursts of lightning in the distant nighttime skies. The muffled rumbles of thunder that followed gave fair warning of the coming storm. The symbolism suggested by its approach wasn't lost on me as I thought about all we'd been through lately, especially the infertility. I wondered if she thought about it as much as me, and if so, what was she thinking? A part of me wanted to know, but fearing what she might say, or worse yet, how she might react. I was curious enough to wonder, but cautious enough not to ask. In truth, my silence sustained my sense of security, but it was merely postponing the inevitable. I knew that sooner or later, she was going to want to talk about it. And when she does, my fragile defenses will most certainly crumble, especially if she becomes emotional. Should that happen, we're going to have another problem, perhaps a bigger one. I am not going to be able to comfort or console her. No reassuring words from me will be forthcoming. The truth is, they can't. And this is a shame because she deserves better than this. And maybe she deserves better than me. I blame infertility as the sole obstacle that's come between the way we've been living and the idyllic life that we planned. After marriage, we saved money and bought a house. Renovations followed, and so too did a new puppy. When the work was done and our house had become our home, it was time to begin filling the freshly painted bedrooms with babies. But it didn't turn out that way. We did come close to achieving our goals, but without children, living that 1950s sitcom life that I'd envisioned while growing up watching reruns of shows such as Ozzie and Harriet or Father Knows Best just wasn't happening. In the end, Even our puppy wasn't enough to provide me with that sense of family that TV dad Ozzie Nelson must have felt when he came home at the end of the day to Harriet, David, and Ricky. The storm was getting closer. I knew we should talk, but my fears demanded otherwise. They did, however, provoke an unexpected memory. I was at camp, a young scout, standing on the edge of the dock waiting for the signal to enter the cold, dark, and frightening waters for my swimmer's test. Not being very good at camp aquatics, I knew that I would have to push aside my fears, take a deep breath, and jump in. 
So many years have passed since then, but once again, I found myself standing on the edge, knowing what I had to do, knowing that it was almost time to jump back into the frightening waters. A brilliant flash crossed the sky and was immediately followed by the sounds of rolling thunder, and then silence. The air became still, the calm before the storm, another fitting metaphor. I closed my eyes, gathered my thoughts, and then, finally, allowed them a voice. Choking back my fears, I took a deep breath and jumped in. I began by saying how frustrated I'd become with everything having to do with infertility. I'd grown weary of living by the dictates of the calendar, thermometers, and early morning temperature taking, of charts and graphs that predetermine the optimum time and date to make a baby, and then our failures to do so. I was sick of doctor visits and waiting rooms. I wanted to be like any other dad, playing catch with his son, or the proud pop walking his daughter down the aisle on her wedding day. I had my fill of friends asking when we were going to start having kids, and family members wondering if a new niece or nephew, cousin, or grandchild would be making an appearance anytime soon. I was tired of wanting children, waiting for it to happen, and knowing it may never. I mentioned medical alternatives. I questioned God's wisdom. And then I went for broke. I asked her to tell me how she really felt about all this, without holding back, without sparing my feelings, without the sugar coating. And then I was done. I exhaled and I shut up. She didn't say a word. I prayed for a flash of lightning, a clap of thunder, anything to break the silence. I blew it, and I knew it. I never should have said all that I had, and now I waited to suffer the consequences for being a horrible spouse. And then I remembered the one thing that I had wanted to say, but had forgotten to mention. This time, it didn't require taking a deep breath or any courage to say those two little words that I've been carrying around in my heart for far too long. I'm sorry. And then I added something that we both already knew. It's all my fault. And of course, it was. Whereas she was physically ready and able to become a participant in the adventures of parenting, apparently, I wasn't. And therein was my dilemma. If our failures to conceive a child caused her sadness, how could I be the supportive husband, the comforting partner that she might need and certainly ought to have, when after all, I was the cause of her unhappiness? when I was the reason that she has never received a card on Mother's Day. Her expression was disarming, comforting, reassuring. Her smile immediately told me what she was thinking, but I knew she was going to tell me anyway. 
Sometimes you can be so stupid, was what she said. The problem, she added, isn't yours and it isn't mine. It's ours. And no matter what happens, it happens to us, for better or worse. I knew she meant it, too. For better or worse, part of our wedding vows, suddenly they took on a whole new meaning, providing the comfort that I worried I couldn't give, but now I needed far more to receive. And that was it. I jumped into the frightening waters and survived, rescued by the person I most loved in the world, and nothing else, as it turned out, mattered more than that. The storm that had been slow in arriving suddenly dissipated, becoming little more than a gentle summer night's rain. It was impossible to foresee the future, no way of knowing if we would ever conceive a child. And yet, I felt a comforting reassurance in knowing that no matter what life held in store for us, we would face it together, as partners, as friends, and as man and wife, for better or worse. And great job on that, Faith, and thanks to Stephen Rossidiak for his candor and for his honesty, and that's what we do here on this show. We tell you the stories that you want to hear and need to hear. Again, no screaming and yelling on this show, uh, just stories from the heart. And this is a tough one for any man, for any woman, and it can ruin marriages. I've seen it happen, and we all know it. We've known people in our lives who've gone through this. Sex turned into a job, intimacy destroyed, blame well enough to go around everywhere. I jumped into the frightening waters and survived, rescued by the person I most loved in the world. And that's what happens when you open yourself up to someone you love. At least that's what can. Stephen Rossetiak's story, and thanks to the folks in Chicken Soup for the Soul, and this came from Chicken Soup for the Soul Married Life, and thanks to them for this partnership. Stephen Rossetiak's story, so many married couples suffering from this thing called infertility, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another On Leadership story, this time with the first Marine to ever be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. The third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn, New York family, Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. After a distinguished career in and out of combat, Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds 
But Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that, yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me, and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground, and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out, except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned the day before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test. Da, 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 da. John went and saw the company officer, told them what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. 
Every time some PFC stood in front of me and swore up and down it, he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through, what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge? 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am, So that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, 
sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually, about events that changed his life. And... Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a 1,000 Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was, was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused to put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from whence we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, lieutenant colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement. Uh, now what? What am I going to do next, right? <laughs> I was okay with my decision but I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in and report, and Sir, Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be, Pete, you're fired, or what are we going to be, okay? But it reinforced for me, again, 
I didn't do that lightly. I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. You owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of the Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, 1st Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander. wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-positioned ships worth of equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out, and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand off and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm's sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in another chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, How about, uh, excuse me, the main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting, I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? <laughs> Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC Pace, but the decision part of it was, we need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. Okay? <laughs> Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance 
two plus years from now to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. The Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted, the general was telling these 19-year-olds. And there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1st, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C. But Pace went to that memorial, the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each 3 by 5 piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these 3 by 5s was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point. With love and respect, your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story, 
to the third-class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories, too, all the fallen men's stories in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. Our American stories and the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began of what it means to us today. They want to hear the Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey lurkey do and turkey lurkey dap. I eat that turkey and I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. 
The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavour to manifest this history in a plain style, with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things. At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without Terrafin. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation 
that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again. But where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. Where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean 
this is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the New World, where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell. And this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine, in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures, fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers. They were not emissaries of a foreign government. They were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrims' devotion and faith 
that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after, the Speedwell has trouble. The master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough-and-tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A lot of dribbling cock queens. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> <laughs> you see that quail, little, little he would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the Alex. The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims 
as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been blazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing, but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak, they are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming. With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind, and then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then. Just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. 
He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. 
The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few weak and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. Amen. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God, 
and he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? Yeah. It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time in the holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television. Everything is wonderful and it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think that people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. For the holidays you can't
And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon. But it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. And we share it with you here on Our American Stories.